Artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Welcome to episode 99. We are going to conclude the interview with Callum Chase, futurist, keynote speaker, and author of Surviving AI, The Promise and Peril of Artificial Intelligence, and The Economic Singularity, Artificial Intelligence and the Death of Capitalism. His think tank, the Economic Singularity Foundation, published a book of short stories by its members titled Stories from 2045. In part one, we talked about singularities like Ray Kurzweil's and the economic singularity and how our socioeconomic system will cope with the changes that come from AI. And we also learned that frogs are smart enough to jump out of a pot of water that's slowly coming to a boil. Are people as smart as frogs? In this conclusion, we're going to talk about sustainable ecologies in the singularity and the metaverse. Have you been in the metaverse yet? What do you think? Here's our first mention of it on this show. Let's get back to the interview with Callum Chase. One of the fundamental problems of prediction is that even when you're getting close to an accurate prediction, it doesn't sound right. To explain mm. that, I was reading this collection of stories that you curated, the stories from 2045, mm. which are people's ideas, some futurists' ideas of what could be happening, a day in the life of someone in 2045. And I was struck by how much they sound tongue-in-cheek, even when they're not. How much they sound like a Douglas Adams, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy view of the future, mm. just because they're not as grounded in today's reality. Like someone talking about New York City being renamed Trump City and being flooded and that definitely sounds tongue-in-cheek, and maybe it was. But then again, 20 years ago, the idea of Donald Trump being president was even more tongue-in-cheek to the point where it was good enough to be a Simpsons episode. Mm. And so reality has a way of reaching a point where it sounds like what we would have said was parody at some point in the past. If we went back 30 years and started saying, in the future, people will be tweeting and in the metaverse will be, and use these terms, they'd say, yeah, that sounds like you're on something. Is that a risk that we, well, what is the difficulty for you as someone who thinks about this far in the future of trying to convey that without it sounding like you're just making things up randomly? Yeah, you're absolutely right. A lot of those stories do sound like they were written by Douglas Adams, although, of course, we're not as good writers as Douglas Adams by a long way. Firstly, it's very hard to write positive stories about the future because stories need jeopardy. They need a hero who suffers terrible difficulties and then triumphs, possibly dies in the process, but triumphs. And that's why most science fiction futurist Hollywood movies are dystopias. There's some great honourable exceptions, Star Trek, the movie Her, the movie Transcendence, which is slightly dystopian, but I think a bit optimistic as well. There's a lot more negative ones. And yes, all forecasts are wrong. The world develops in astonishing ways. And you're right. I mean, who on earth could have predicted Trump being president 20 years ago? That would have been mind-bendingly hard to predict. 
but we need good stories. And something that's given me pleasure recently is the Future of Life Institute, which is founded by Max Tegmark, is running a competition to ask people to write positive stories about the future. We do need that. You know, if everybody thinks, oh God, AI is going to become super intelligence and it's going to kill us all. If that's the settled view, if that's the consensus, and we're going to technological unemployment, which means that there'll be a few rich people and everybody else will starve, then we will get the panics, which could end up destroying civilization. We need positive stories about the future. So when I edited that book, I really pushed all the contributors to write one positive story as well as one negative story. The first 10 or 20 stories that got contributed were all negative. I had to really push people to do positive ones. Yes, I know exactly what you're talking about, both from a story point of view. When I was talking with Beth Singler, an anthropologist at Cambridge, she mentioned we have this need. And also I find when I'm talking to audience about the future and I see AI as being equally balanced between positive and negative effects over various timeframes, positive effects and negative risks, that as fairly as I try to pitch that, they will glom onto the negative side of it far more. Mm. And then I will increase the emphasis on the positive side. And I've got to do that by at least a factor of three before it starts coming across as balanced. Do you find when you're talking to audiences about this that the factor of the unknown in the future that you're talking about because you're saying there's going to be huge changes and we think it'll be like this, but maybe not, that that unknown factor of big change causes some sort of paralysis, terror? Yeah, yeah, very much. Uh, it's something I'm continually fighting against is, is this fear of the future. I'd say most of the people I speak to think that the rapid improvement in AI is overall scary. And one of the things that I am always perpetually surprised about is people don't like the idea that something we haven't talked about very much, which is that longevity science could bear really big dividends in the relatively near future. You know, I think it's quite likely that in this century, death will become optional. The advances being made in longevity science are remarkable. We're a very long way from it yet, but given exponential growth, a long way can be traveled quite quickly. Human biology is absurdly complicated, just ridiculously complicated, but we are starting to tease out possible therapies which could make death optional. And I'm always astonished at how many people are not excited by that. Lots of people think it's a really bad idea. It's a sort of a death wish that people seem to have. So yeah, I'm continually fighting to get people to be more optimistic about the future. As I say, I'm an unrepentant techno-optimist. I think that our lives are much, much better than they were 500 years ago. And at the end of this century, they're going to be enormously better than they are today. And you and I both use the Star Trek label as the shorthand for that optimistic view. I haven't found a better one yet. No. So you've talked about another couple of singularities, agricultural singularity and the longevity singularity. Where do those happen relative to the economic singularity and what are their outcomes? Good question. So the agricultural singularity is the one I know least about, but it seems clear to me that within a relatively small number of decades, I would think before the economic singularity, we will drastically reduce and possibly stop giving over so much of our land to raising animals to eat them. I think that 70% of the UK is given over to growing crops to feed animals to eat them. It's an astonishing use of land. And 
there's dramatic progress in ersatz meat, if you like, in plant-based meat and lab-grown meat. And I imagine that in 20, 30 years, we will be mostly eating meat that's comes from plants or comes from labs. And the other thing is vertical farms in warehouses near to cities. So you don't have to ship peas from Kenya to London. You can grow them in a silo you know, in South End or Maidstone. Let's cover Maidstone with vertical farms. That would be a good idea. So I think that's going to happen. As I say, probably it will happen before the economic singularity. The longevity singularity I think, might take a bit longer because human biology is so complicated. But there's some really fascinating work going on. There's an organ called the thymus, which sits below the breastbone, which generates T cells, which are one of the main things that the body uses to fight off infections. And the thymus, sadly, just deteriorates as you get older. And so it's virtually useless by the time you're my age. And people are working on ways to regenerate it. And if we can do that, you know, we can tackle an awful lot of infectious diseases. People are working on injecting tissues into the brain so that the brain doesn't get any older. Now, we know that within a not an enormous length of time, we'll be able to replace pretty much every organ in the body except for the brain. And the brain is the most important one. But if we can stop the brain getting older by injecting tissues into it, stem cell tissues into it, then we could solve aging that way. And there's various other experiments going on with telomeres and clearing out senescent cells and so on. So my guess, and, and this will certainly be proved wrong, because the only thing we know about any forecast is that it's wrong. We just don't know by how much and in what direction. So my guess is that you'll get the agricultural singularity, then the economic singularity, and then the longevity singularity. Mm. As a vegetarian, I certainly welcome this progress towards artificial meat and replacing the farming of cattle, which would also have a beneficial effect on our climate. I was reading an article in the Los mm. Angeles Times today by a writer saying about a report that just came out from International Climate Change Body, the name escapes me, about how dire things are and saying, really, we shouldn't be talking about anything else. And there's a lot to that. If it was happening suddenly, we wouldn't be talking about anything else. It would overshadow war and pandemic and everything else. But because it's always there and 1% here, 1% there. We are, the frogs are smarter than we are. The frogs jump out of the water. <laughs> and so this is overshadowing a lot of the things we're talking about, I feel. It's overshadowing it for me. What do you think about technology versus climate change? I'm a techno-optimist and I think that we can solve it. I think that actually we're making remarkable progress towards stopping digging up dead dinosaurs as the majority of our energy and getting more and more energy from renewable sources. I think it's a terrible shame that the environmentalist movement took against nuclear power because it does seem to be that nuclear power is a valuable part of the mix in the transition. I think we need to accept the fact that there is going to be a transition. I think the idea that you just stop using oil and gas today and everything will be great is not a good idea because it means many people will starve and of course, the people who will suffer most will be the poor people. There is a transition that has to happen, but I think we are actually making progress on it, and I think it will accelerate. And it will accelerate partly because of economics. As you go up the learning curve with any new technology, then the process gets cheaper, and that's happening with solar cells. I've just built a new house here in Spain, and we've got solar panels on the roof, and we are pretty much energy independent, and that's you know it's not uncommon. Now, down here in Spain, we have a lot of sun. But in fact, too much sun makes solar panels 
less efficient. So you can use solar panels very efficiently further north in Europe as well. So I think we are making progress. There needs to be more progress. Uh, and I think things like the agricultural singularity moving away from having cows chuck out tons of methane into the atmosphere will be a good thing. I'm optimistic. I think we'll get there. I do think panic is our biggest enemy, our biggest threat. I think that writer was making the point that we perhaps ought to panic a bit more about the climate change in that we are ignoring it too much. But I mean, panic is not productive, but then at least to pay more attention to it. But this might be getting outside of the scope of this conversation. We hear a lot about the metaverse these days, and it's a little hard for me to wrap my head around. I look at augmented reality, virtual reality. I keep thinking I need an excuse to buy an Oculus Quest and see what it's like, but I don't find any business productivity applications for that, only games. That's not enough. But I get the sense that certainly Mark Zuckerberg thinks that this is where the world is pivoting to and that there might be uh, much bigger implications for it in the future and uses of it than just games. What do you think? I think that virtual reality is going to be an enormous part of our futures, but I don't think that we are all going to spend hours and hours a day in virtual reality in the next two to five years. I've got an Oculus Quest 2. It's really impressive. But actually, I wouldn't urge you go out and buy one because I agree with you. I don't spend a lot of time using it. What I haven't done yet, and I will do, is try out VR as a meeting place. I think that might be a really interesting use of it. You know, Zoom has changed the way we do phone calls in the last two or three years. The pandemic switched us all onto Zoom. And there's no doubt that in a video call, you convey a lot more information because you can see people's faces and where they're moving their hands and what have you. And I think in 3D, and really VR is essentially, or the metaverse anyway, which is kind of primitive VR, is actually, I think the best way to think of it is it's the internet in 3D. It's the web in 3D. And I think in 3D, you convey more data than you do in 2D. Now, I think where Zuckerberg's real focus is, and this is true for Apple and Google and the others as well, is in augmented reality and particularly smart glasses. I think what they all believe is that smart glasses are going to become the portal through which we all interact with the web. They won't replace smartphones. They'll be the thing that we look at our smartphones through. So you take your smartphone out of your pocket, you look down at it, and you cross the road and you get run over. If you're wearing smart glasses, you carry on looking. You've got a head-up display the information is being presented to you and you can continue interacting with the real world in a more natural and frankly safer way. And what's happening is that because of processing power getting to the right point, it's possible to convey that sort of information through as a pair of smart glasses. So my hunch is that what Zuckerberg really thinks is that we're all going to be wearing smart glasses in somewhere between five to 10 years. And he wants to have a big role as one of the platforms that we access that world through. So we're walking around with smart glasses on, we'll still have our smartphones in our pocket, and they will probably be where most of the processing power is because we'll need more and more processing power. Video chews it up. There's an old phrase that hardware giveth and software taketh away, and that'll never stop being the case. So I think that's the switch that he and Apple and Google are working on, the switch from just smartphones with the screen, that's how you access the internet, through you access it through a pair of smart glasses with the smartphone being the compute device where the processing sits. 
I think for me that, because I've long had those glass envy, wanted something like Google Glass, but much more capable, like you're describing, for me that would necessitate a lot of AI to provide utility. Like I'm terrible at names and faces. So I would like something that tells me when I see someone, you've met this person before, here's their name, here's where, and that would make a huge difference to my life alone. You need AI to do that. It's doable, mm. absent privacy implications, but it's doable now. And what do you see in the intersection of AI, the overlap between AI and the metaverse? You're right, the AI fuels virtual reality and it will fuel future virtual reality. And I agree with you, I'd love a pair of glasses to remind me the names of the people I'm bumping into, the names of their kids. And frankly, I'm getting to the age where we all start talking about the organ recital, you know, what we're going to the doctor about this week. So, you know, to remind me of the things that I do already know about people, that'd be fantastically useful. But it isn't just that, it's information about everything, where I'm going, how long it's going to take me to get there, the history of a particular building and so on. The, one of the great promises of AI is that it makes the world intelligible. And that is so exciting. You know, having grown up in the 70s, where if you wanted to know who the fifth Beatle was, the Beatle who fell by the wayside, you had to go to a library and, and look it up. And now you just, you know, open your phone and look it up there. Well, it won't be long before you can just say, who was the fifth Beatle? And Alexa or Cortana or Google Assistant, whoever, whichever one you're using, will say it through the bone conducting mic in your glasses. The world becomes more understandable. Very exciting. As we talk about all these possibilities and applications of a technology, it occurs to me that I can only look through these through so wide a window, and that window isn't wide enough to look at all of them at the same time. It's related to George Miller's magic number, the number of things that you can essentially hold in your mind at once, seven plus or minus two, and it's a limitation of our cognitive ability. And one of the things I do is ask people to imagine what an AI could do that didn't have that limitation and could think about a million things at the same time. And now you have me thinking about the difficulty of predicting the future when at least my cognitive window is relatively narrow compared to what we need to look at, but also whether an AI that wasn't so limited could actually help us predict the future. And then it becomes a threat to the job of futurists. Oops, maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if futurists and everybody else is augmented by AI, then that just raises the bar for everybody. You know, today to be a successful futurist, you've got to be more plausible or perhaps just more exciting and more charming than your fellow futurists. That would still be true in this AI augmented world. It's just that the bar would have been raised and you'd just have to be that much better. Granted. So what's coming up for you in future projects? What are you working on? I've just created a new talk because a lot of what I do is give talks to keynote talks to audiences around the world. Just create a new talk on the metaverse. I think there's a, an enormous amount of confusion and befuddlement out there about what it is and what the difference is between augmented reality and virtual reality and mixed reality and extended reality and how that all fits into Web 3.0. So I've just created a talk on that. So I hope to start going around giving that talk. And I'm doing a series of interviews with people working in the longevity space, as we were talking about before we started. It's a real privilege to talk to these people. They are absolute heroes. And 
engaged in a project which is going to transform human life incredibly for the better. If death becomes optional, wow, what a better world that is. So it's a delight to talk to people working at that. And I really enjoyed doing that series of interviews. And really just kind of looking forward to getting back out and meeting people again as the pandemic recedes into the background and events start happening again. Mm. And we start meeting in person again. And that's been one of the paradoxes of the pandemic for me, that I have gotten to speak to thousands more people much more easily and cheaply than I would have otherwise because they had to meet online and therefore more of them could meet online and I could meet them without having to leave my home. And so there was that benefit, but the bandwidth of this connection, and I'm not talking just about video, but the other sub-modalities of the senses that we're not getting. And I don't mean that I can't smell them. I mean, even if I'm having a meeting with half a dozen people around a table, I can have a much faster, more connected conversation because I can look at someone in one direction and say something just for them and their ears and the spatial audio and them seeing me making eye contact with them will let me deliver that message to them instantly in a way that's impossible on mm. Zoom. And so those meetings can be that much more productive. But the thing I've always been thinking about throughout the pandemic has been, yes, we can get that. That is, I don't know how much, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 90% more productive a meeting than what we are doing right now with Zoom and video. But is it worth the travel costs and the overhead of meeting in person? That is the, the huge question. Yeah, well, to, me, to me, the answer to that is definitely yes. Zoom is really good for one-to-one. -one. You know, uh, us sitting here chatting mm -hmm. because the screen is big enough to hold our faces, mm. it's fine. It works really well. And I think travel to do one-to-one -one meetings will be rarer. Mm -hmm. But the difference between, as you all know, giving a talk to people in a room and giving a talk on a screen when you've either got sort of 20 to 100 or more mm -hmm. little thumbnails and you can't actually see any of them properly, mm -hmm. Or you have got none. Right. You know, you're not seeing the audience at all. That is a way worse experience, both for the speaker and for the audience. For the speaker is terrible because you're getting no feedback at all. Mm -hmm. You know, I love talking to audiences and you know, when they laugh at my jokes, that's very exciting. When they don't laugh at my jokes, I know to change them. And that feedback is enormously valuable to me. And I also know that as somebody who attends talks online, it is so tempting to fiddle with the emails on my phone while somebody's talking. You know, I just don't pay the attention I would if I was sitting in a room. If you're sitting in a room, people are still looking at their phones and doing their emails, but they're taking more in, partly a matter of etiquette, I suppose, but just you do take more in. So I think one-to-one -one meetings, Zoom is fine. One-to-many meetings, it's nowhere near as good. It may be, in fact, I'm sure it will be, that in the future, virtual reality will allow us to do one-to-many meetings really, really well. I suspect we're not there yet, I haven't done them yet, but I will try them. But there's a development process there, which will take us to a good place eventually. I completely agree. And some of my most transformative and elevating experiences have been in front of audiences live. Those have not been reproduced online. And just an anecdote, in observing some TEDx talks that were done online and being a TEDx speaker was engaged in looking at these because I was part of a TEDx coaching and curation team. 
So we were very interested in seeing what was happening with talks online. My observation, my interpretation of what happened with these online TEDx talks was that in person, a speaker with an audience is able to make an emotional connection that lets them trade on that connection to make an ask of the audience. Because most TEDx mm. talks are going to make a call to action. So they're going mm -hmm. to describe some kind of problem and make an emotional impact on the audience that something needs to change so that they can then ask for their engagement in that. And what I saw with the ones that were done online where they didn't have the audience in front of them to do that with, and these speakers are not experienced with like being on television where actors have to be able to make that connection with an imaginary audience, was that the talks were just grueling. They didn't mm. make that connection. So instead, they came across as being depressing. I mean, after like the fourth one of one day, I was messaging my friends and who were, had to watch this and saying, do we have to keep doing this? I've had enough. <laughs> no one feels like they can crack a joke in this, that it's all too serious. And so I'm really, really interested in when we will have metaverse technology, as virtual reality technology that could improve on that. Can you speculate, well, not as to when, but what it would look like, how it could engage us? Yeah, at the moment, if you have a meeting in the metaverse in Horizons, Facebook's current sort of metaverse world, you use avatars, which are sort of cartoonish versions of themselves. They have hands. The hands may well not be connected to the body through arms. Arms are a bit difficult to reproduce and legs are really difficult to reproduce. So they don't have legs. So you've got these kind of, you know, your little cartoon characters, but it's still quite effective because the faces can be quite expressive. Now, when it gets really interesting, of course, is when you have holograms or when you have a 3D representation of the photographic reality of people. We have some way off that. My hunch is that in the next two to five years, people will be doing more meetings in virtual reality in cartoon avatar form. And probably more like 10 to 20 years, we'll have something like a hologram experience in virtual reality. And that's when it gets really interesting. That's when you get to the position where possibly you get the death of distance. That's going to be really interesting. Will people stop traveling for business anyway? If you can have a VR meeting where you struggle to tell the difference between being in a room with people and doing it online. Maybe mm. it's more than 20 years, maybe it's 30, but the power of exponential growth is always surprising. Exactly. Wise man once pointed out, 30 years gives you a million-fold improvement. Exactly. Well, that was in your book. Yeah. And, and, uh, <laughs> I nicked it from somebody else, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> and there's only one Peter Scott, there's only one Callum Chase, and... Sometimes there are two things that I'd like to do at the same time. I wonder whether mm. AI, well, I wonder when AI will get to the point where there will be a meeting that's sufficiently undemanding that that avatar of me could be run by an AI while I'm doing something that requires a bit more of me. Yeah, I think it shouldn't be very far off. If you remember Google Duplex, I haven't looked up to see where that's got to recently. That was essentially avatars talking to humans to undertake basic transactions, book a restaurant, book a hair appointment. And I think in the next five to 10 years, we probably will send our 
digital agents, our avatars, whatever you want to call them, off into the internet to do basic errands for us. You know, you're going to buy the shopping, going to negotiate an electricity contract for a house or something. That that should all be doable with an avatar. Mm. It'll be interesting to see how that works. I imagine probably people will flip into accepting it and doing it pretty quickly. It seems pretty spooky right now that you'd send off a, an AI to represent you in a commercial transaction, but I imagine that we'll get used to it pretty quickly. I believe there are examples of people having already done something like this in Zoom meetings or... <laughs> Yes, I can't recall the details, like who or to what extent, but there have been examples of people putting virtual versions of themselves in a Zoom meeting and having it not actually be noticed. Obviously, it wasn't engaged to the extent that we were here, but it was nevertheless something noteworthy. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could have a an avatar sitting in a meeting and pretending to pay attention as long as it wasn't called on to say anything or do anything, that that shouldn't be too hard. And of course, there are virtual secretaries. I think there's one called Amy, which will negotiate scheduling a meeting. That's been around for a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are people who swear by it. I'm not aware of actually ever having dealt with one, but you never know. And I understand that an interesting phenomenon is that even when people know that they're interacting with a bot, they like it. They like the bot. And they sometimes say to the person when they actually get to meet them, oh, give my regards to Amy, mm-hmm. knowing full well that Amy's a bot. Mm. We anthropomorphize everything, actually, humans. We anthropomorphize cars, we anthropomorphize animals, and we will anthropomorphize AIs. And that could actually be quite dangerous. We're going to need to be careful about that. Yes, I agree. Duplex didn't reach the level of use that had been forecast for it, but it lives on. I get calls from it occasionally asking me to verify my Google business listing. It's a man in that. And the first time it called me, I didn't realize that there was an agent until it hung up. And I thought, that's different. It wasn't pushy, like someone trying to make a sale. There would usually do some sort of upsell, didn't do that, Mm. just said. And then I realized it started out by saying, I'm the automated Google business assistant and just calling to verify your business. It did declare itself, did it? It has to now, yeah. Yeah, I thought it did. Yeah, I'd heard that they had promised that they would do that, yeah. Wow, this has been fascinating. Callum Chase, how should people get in touch with you or follow you, find out what you're doing? I'm quite busy on Twitter. I'm at CC Callum. So at C-C-C-A-L-U-M. And definitely they should buy my books, which you have done, Peter, bless you. (laughs) All right. Callum Chase, thank you for coming on Artificial Intelligence and You. Thank you, Peter. It was a great pleasure. Really enjoyed it. That's the end of the interview. We've visited that idea before of offloading some of your busy work onto a virtual clone of yourself. It's on my bucket list, okay? But this is the first time we said, what if it were in the metaverse? If you're looking for Callum online, start with CallumChase.com. That's C-A-L-U-M-C-H-A-C-E.com. In today's news, ripped from the headlines about AI, an AI that reads chest x-rays by itself, no human radiologist in the loop or checking its results, got cleared for use in Europe recently. The company is called Oxipit, and the AI is called ChestLink, so it reads chest x-rays. Its certification is like the EU's equivalent of FDA approval, although it doesn't have that yet. It's a little harder to get. Oxipit says that it has made zero clinically relevant errors during the pilot phrase. This inevitably brings to mind comments by Jeffrey Hinton, who practically invented deep learning, 
who said in 2016 we should stop training radiologists, and memorably said that, quote, radiologists are the coyote already over the edge of the cliff who hasn't yet looked down, end quote. Hard to forget that one. That turned out to be an overstatement, and we still need just as many human radiologists as ever, but you can't help but wonder whether this development might be the start of a change in that. Next week is a special episode, because it will be our 100th episode, and so there's no guest, just me, and I'll be talking about what I learned from our guests on previous shows, so it'll be a kind of a guide to those episodes and why you should listen to them, what you might get out of them. That's next week on AI and You. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AIandYou.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.